Chapter Forty Five of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Five. Kreis came to see Martin one day, Kreis of the real dirt, and Martin turned to him with relief to receive the glowing details of a scheme sufficiently wildcatty to interest him as a fictionist rather than as an investor. Kreis paused long enough in the midst of his exposition to tell him that in most of his shame of the sun he had been a chump. "'But I didn't come here to spout philosophy,' Kreese went on. "'What I want to know is whether or not you will put a thousand dollars in on this deal.' "'No, I'm not chump enough for that at any rate,' Martin answered. "'But I'll tell you what I will do. You gave me the greatest night of my life. You gave me what money cannot buy. Now I've got money, and it means nothing to me.' I'd like to turn over to you a thousand dollars of what I don't value for what you gave me that night and which was beyond price. You need the money. I've got more than I need. You want it. You came for it. There's no use scheming it out of me. Take it." Kreese betrayed no surprise. He folded the check away in his pocket. "'At any rate, I'd like the contract of providing you with many such nights,' he said. "'Too late,' Martin shook his head. That night was the one night for me. I was in paradise. It's commonplace with you, I know, but it wasn't to me. I shall never live at such a pitch again. I'm done with philosophy. I want never to hear another word of it. The first dollar I ever made in my life out of philosophy, Kreese remarked as he paused in the doorway, and then the market broke. Mrs. Morse drove by Martin on the street one day and smiled and nodded. He smiled back and lifted his hat. The episode did not affect him. A month before it might have disgusted him, or made him curious, and set him to speculating about her state of consciousness at that moment. But now it was not provocative of a second thought. He forgot about it the next moment. He forgot about it, as he would have forgotten the central bank building or the city hall after having walked past them. Yet his mind was preternaturally active. His thoughts went ever around and around in a circle. The center of that circle was work performed. It aided his brain like a deathless maggot. He awoke to it in the morning. It tormented his dreams at night. Every affair of life around him that penetrated through his senses immediately related itself to work performed. He drove along the path of relentless logic to the conclusion that he was nobody, nothing. Mart Eden, the hoodlum, and Mart Eden the sailor, had been real had been he, but Martin Eden, the famous writer, did not exist. Martin Eden, the famous writer, was a vapor that had arisen in the mob mind, and by the mob mind had been thrust into the corporeal being of Mart Eden, the hoodlum and sailor. But it couldn't fool him. He was not that sun-myth that the mob was worshipping and sacrificing dinners to. He knew better. He read the magazines about himself and pored over portraits of himself published therein, until he was unable to associate his identity with those portraits. He was the fellow who had lived and thrilled and loved, who had been easy-going and tolerant of the frailties of life, who had served in the forecastle, wandered in strange lands, and led his gang in the old fighting days. He was the fellow who had been stunned at first by the thousands of books in the free library, and who had afterward learned his way among them, and mastered them. He was the fellow who had burned the midnight oil, and bedded with a spur, and written books himself. 
But the one thing he was not was that colossal appetite that all the mob was bent upon feeding. There were things, however, in the magazines that amused him. All the magazines were claiming him. Warren's Monthly advertised to its subscribers that it was always on the quest after new writers, and that, among others, it had introduced Martin to the reading public. The White Mouse claimed him, so did the Northern Review and Mackintosh's magazine, until silenced by the Globe, which pointed triumphantly to its files where the mangled sea lyrics lay buried. Youth and age, which had come to life again, after having escaped paying its bills, put in a prior claim which nobody but farmers' children ever read. The Transcontinental made a dignified and convincing statement of how it first discovered Martin Eden, which was warmly disputed by the Hornet with the exhibit of the Perry and the Pearl. The modest claim of Singletree, Darnley, and Company was lost in the din. Besides, that publishing firm did not own a magazine wherewith to make its claim less modest. The newspapers calculated Martin's royalties. In some way, the magnificent offers certain magazines had made him leaked out, and Oakland ministers called upon him in a friendly way, while professional begging letters began to clutter his mail. But worse than all this were the women. His photographs were published broadcast, and special writers exploited his strong bronzed face, his scars, his heavy shoulders, his clear quiet eyes, and the slight hollows in his cheeks like an ascetic's. At this last he remembered his wild youth and smiled. Often, among the women he met, he would see now one, now another, looking at him, appraising him, selecting him. He laughed to himself. He remembered Brissenden's warning and laughed again. The women would never destroy him, that much was certain. He had gone past that stage. Once, walking with Lizzie toward night school, he caught a glance directed toward him by a well-gowned, handsome woman of the bourgeoisie. The glance was a trifle too long, a shade too considerative. Lizzie knew it for what it was, and her body tensed angrily. Martin noticed, noticed the cause of it, told her how used he was becoming to it, and that he did not care anyway. "'You ought to care,' she answered with blazing eyes. "'You're sick. That's what's the matter. Never healthier in my life. I weigh five pounds more than I ever did. It ain't your body. It's your head. Something's wrong with your think-machine. Even I can see that, and I ain't nobody.' He walked on beside her, reflecting. "'I'd give anything to see you get over it,' she broke out impulsively. "'You ought to care when women look at you that way, a man like you. It's not natural. It's all right enough for sissy boys, but you ain't made that way. So help me, I'd be willing and glad if the right woman came along and made you care.' When he left Lizzie at night school, he returned to the Metropole. Once in his rooms, he dropped into a Morris chair and sat staring straight before him. He did not doze, nor did he think. His mind was a blank, save for the intervals when unsummoned memory pictures took form and color and radiance just under his eyelids. He saw these pictures, but he was scarcely conscious of them, no more so than if they had been dreams. Yet he was not asleep. Once he roused himself and glanced at his watch. It was just eight o'clock. He had nothing to do, and it was too early for bed. 
Then his mind went blank again, and the pictures began to form and vanish under his eyelids. There was nothing distinctive about the pictures. They were always masses of leaves and shrub-like branches, shot through with hot sunshine. A knock at the door aroused him. He was not asleep, and his mind immediately connected the knock with a telegram, a letter, or perhaps one of the servants bringing back clean clothes from the laundry. He was thinking about Joe, and wondering where he was, as he said, Come in. He was still thinking about Joe, and did not turn toward the door. He heard it close softly. There was a long silence. He forgot that there had been a knock at the door, and was still staring blankly before him when he heard a woman's sob. It was involuntary, spasmodic, checked, and stifled. He noted that as he turned about. The next instant he was on his feet. "'Ruth,' he said, amazed and bewildered. Her face was white and strained. She stood just inside the door, one hand against it for support, the other pressed to her side. She extended both hands toward him piteously, and started forward to meet him. As he caught her hands and held her to the Morris chair, he noticed how cold they were. He drew up another chair and sat down on the broad arm of it. He was too confused to speak. In his own mind his affair with Ruth was closed and sealed. He felt much in the same way that he would have felt had the Shelley Hot Springs laundry suddenly invaded the Hotel Metropole with a whole week's washing ready for him to pitch into. Several times he was about to speak, and each time he hesitated. "'No one knows I am here,' Ruth said in a faint voice, with an appealing smile. "'What did you say?' he asked. He was surprised at the sound of his own voice. She repeated her words. "'Oh,' he said, then wondered what more he could possibly say. "'I saw you come in, and I waited a few minutes.' "'Oh,' he said again. He had never been so tongue-tied in his life. Positively he did not have an idea in his head. He felt stupid and awkward, but for the life of him he could think of nothing to say. It would have been easier had the intrusion been the Shelley Hot Springs laundry. He could have rolled up his sleeves and gone to work. "'And then you came in,' he said finally. She nodded with a slightly arch expression and loosened the scarf at her throat. I saw you first across the street when you were with that girl. Oh, yes, he said simply. I took her down to night school. Well, aren't you glad to see me? She said, at the end of another silence. Yes, yes, he spoke hastily. But wasn't it rash of you to come here? I slipped in. Nobody knows I am here. I wanted to see you. I came to tell you I have been very foolish. I came because I could no longer stay away, because my heart compelled me to come, because, because I wanted to come. She came forward, out of her chair and over to him. She rested her hand on his shoulder a moment, breathing quickly, and then slipped into his arms. And in his large, easy way, desirous of not inflicting hurt, knowing that to repulse this proffer of herself was to inflict the most grievous hurt a woman could receive. He folded his arms around her and held her close. But there was no warmth in the embrace, no caress in the contact. She had come into his arms, and he held her. That was all. She nestled against him, and then, with a change of position, 
Her hands crept up and rested upon his neck. But his flesh was not fire beneath those hands, and he felt awkward and uncomfortable. "'What makes you tremble so?' he asked. "'Is it a chill? Shall I light the grate?' He made a movement to disengage himself, but she clung more closely to him, shivering violently. "'It is merely nervousness,' she said with chattering teeth. "'I'll control myself in a minute. There, I am better already.' Slowly her shivering died away. He continued to hold her, but he was no longer puzzled. He knew now for what she had come. "'My mother wanted me to marry Charlie Hapgood,' she announced. "'Charlie Hapgood, that fellow who speaks always in platitudes,' Martin groaned. Then he added, "'And now, I suppose, your mother wants you to marry me.' He did not put it in the form of a question. He stated it as a certitude and before his eyes began to dance the rows of figures of his royalties. "'She will not object, I know that much,' Ruth said. "'She considers me quite eligible,' Ruth nodded. "'And yet I am not a bit more eligible now than I was when she broke our engagement,' he meditated. "'I haven't changed any. I'm the same Martin Eden, though for that matter I'm a bit worse. I smoke now. Don't you smell my breath?' In reply, she pressed her open fingers upon his lips, placed them graciously and playfully, and in expectancy of the kiss, that of old had always been a consequence. But there was no caressing answer of Martin's lips. He waited until the fingers were removed, and then went on. I am not changed. I haven't got a job. I am not looking for a job. Furthermore, I am not going to look for a job. And I still believe that Herbert Spencer is a great and noble man, and that Judge Blount is an unmitigated ass. I had dinner with him the other night, so I ought to know. But you didn't accept father's invitation, she chided. So you know about that. Who sent him, your mother? She remained silent. Then she did send him, I thought so, and now I suppose she has sent you. No one knows that I am here, she protested. Do you think my mother would permit this? She'd permit you to marry me, that's certain. She gave a sharp cry. Oh, Martin, don't be cruel. You have not kissed me once. You are as unresponsive as a stone. And think what I have dared to do. She looked about her with a shiver, though half the look was curiosity. Just think of where I am. I could die for you. I could die for you. Lizzie's words were ringing in his ears. Why didn't you dare it before? he asked harshly. When I hadn't a job, when I was starving, when I was just as I am now, as a man, as an artist, the same Martin Eden. That's the question I've been propounding to myself for many a day, not concerning you merely, but concerning everybody. You see, I have not changed, though my sudden apparent appreciation and value compels me constantly to reassure myself on that point. I've got the same flesh on my bones, the same tin fingers and toes. I am the same. I have not developed any new strength nor virtue. My brain is the same old brain. I haven't made even one new generalization on literature or philosophy. I am personally of the same value that I was when nobody wanted me. And what is puzzling me is why they want me now. Surely they don't want me for myself. For myself is the same old self they did not want then they must want me for something else, for something that is outside of me, for something that is not I. Shall I tell you what that something is? 
It is for the recognition I have received. That recognition is not I. It resides in the minds of others. Then again, for the money I have earned, and am earning. But that money is not I. It resides in banks and in the pockets of Tom, Dick, and Harry. And is it for that, for the recognition and the money, that you want me now? You are breaking my heart, she sobbed. You know I love you, and I am here because I love you. I am afraid you don't see my point, he said gently. What I mean is, if you love me, how does it happen that you love me now so much more than you did when your love was weak enough to deny me? Forget and forgive, she cried passionately. I loved you all the time, remember that, and I am here now in your arms. I am afraid I am a shrewd merchant, peering into the scales, trying to weigh your love and find out what manner of thing it is. She withdrew herself from his arms, sat upright, and looked at him long and searchingly. She was about to speak, then faltered and changed her mind. "'You see, it appears this way to me,' he went on. "'When I was all that I am now, nobody out of my own class seemed to care for me. When my books were all written, no one who had read the manuscript seemed to care for them. In point of fact, because of the stuff I had written, they seemed to care even less for me. In writing the stuff, it seemed that I had committed acts that were, to say the least, derogatory. Get a job, everybody said. She made a movement of dissent. Yes, yes, he said. Except in your case you told me to get a position. The homely word job, like much of what I have written, offends you. It is brutal. But I assure you, it was no less brutal to me, when everybody I knew recommended it to me, as they would recommend right conduct to an immoral creature, but to return. The publication of what I had written, and the public notice I received, wrought a change in the fiber of your love. Martin Eden, with his work all performed, you would not marry. Your love for him was not strong enough to enable you to marry him. But your love is now strong enough, and I cannot avoid the conclusion that its strength arises from the publication and the public notice. In your case, I do not mention royalties, though I am certain that they apply to the change wrought in your mother and father. Of course, all this is not flattering to me, but worst of all, it makes me question love, sacred love. Is love so gross a thing that it must feed upon publication and public notice? It would seem so. I have sat and thought upon it till my head went round. Poor dear head! She reached up a hand and passed the fingers soothingly through his hair. Let it go around no more. Let us begin anew now. I loved you all the time. I know that I was weak in yielding to my mother's will. I should not have done so. Yet I have heard you speak so often, with broad charity of the fallibility and frailty of humankind. Extend that charity to me. I acted mistakenly. Forgive me. Oh, I do forgive he said impatiently. It is easy to forgive where there is really nothing to forgive. Nothing that you have done requires forgiveness. One acts according to one's lights, and more than that one cannot do. As well might I ask you to forgive me for my not getting a job. I meant well, she protested. You know that. I could not have loved you and not meant well. True, but you would have destroyed me out of your well-meaning. Yes, yes, he shut off her attempted objection. 
you would have destroyed my writing and my career. Realism is imperative to my nature, and the bourgeois spirit hates realism. The bourgeoisie is cowardly, it is afraid of life, and all your effort was to make me afraid of life. You would have formalized me. You would have compressed me into a two-by-four pigeonhole of life, where all life's values are unreal and false and vulgar. He felt her stir protestingly. Vulgarity, a hearty vulgarity, I'll admit, is the basis of bourgeois refinement and culture. As I say, you wanted to formalize me, to make me over into one of your own class, with your class ideals, class values, and class prejudices. He shook his head sadly. And you do not understand, even now, what I am saying. My words do not mean to you what I endeavor to make them mean. What I say is so much fantasy to you, yet to me it is vital reality. At the best you are a trifle puzzled and amused that this raw boy, crawling up out of the mire of the abyss, should pass judgment upon your class and call it vulgar. She leaned her head wearily against his shoulder, and her body shivered with recurrent nervousness. He waited for a time for her to speak, and then went on. And now you want to renew our love. You want us to be married. You want me. And yet, listen, if my books had not been noticed, I'd nevertheless have been just as I am now. And you would have stayed away. It is all those damned books. Don't swear, she interrupted. Her reproof startled him. He broke into a harsh laughter. That's it, he said. At a high moment, when what seems your life's happiness is at stake, you are afraid of life in the same old way, afraid of life and a healthy oath. She was stung by his words, into realization of the puerility of her act, and yet she felt he had magnified it unduly, and was consequently resentful. They sat in silence for a long time, she thinking desperately, and he pondering upon his love which had departed. He knew now that he had not really loved her. It was an idealized Ruth he had loved, an ethereal creature of his own creating, the bright and luminous spirit of his love-poems. The real, bourgeois Ruth, with all the bourgeois failings and with the hopeless cramp of the bourgeois psychology in her mind, he had never loved. She suddenly began to speak. I know that much of what you have said is so. I have been afraid of life. I did not love you well enough. I have learned to love better. I love you for what you are, for what you were, for the ways even by which you have become. I love you for the ways wherein you differ from what you call my class, for your beliefs which I do not understand, but which I know I can come to understand. I shall devote myself to understanding them. And even your smoking and your swearing, they are part of you, and I will love you for them too. I can still learn. In the last ten minutes I have learned much. That I have dared to come here is a token of what I have already learned. Oh, Martin! She was sobbing and nestling close against him. For the first time his arms folded her gently and with sympathy, and she acknowledged it with a happy movement and a brightening face. It is too late, he said. He remembered Lizzie's words. I am a sick man. Oh, not my body. It is my soul, my brain. I seem to have lost all values. I care for nothing. If you had been this way a few months ago, it would have been different. It is too late now. It is not too late, she cried. I will show you. 
I will prove to you that my love has grown, that it is greater to me than my class and all that is dearest to me. All that is dearest to the bourgeoisie I will flout. I am no longer afraid of life. I will leave my mother and father, and let my name become a byword with my friends. I will come to you here and now, in free love, if you will, and I will be proud and glad to be with you. If I have been a traitor to love, I will now, for love's sake, be a traitor to all that made that earlier treason. She stood before him with shining eyes. I am waiting, Martin, she whispered, waiting for you to accept me. Look at me. It was splendid, he thought, looking at her. She had redeemed herself for all that she had lacked, rising up at last, true woman, superior to the iron rule of the bourgeois convention. It was splendid, magnificent, desperate. And yet, what was the matter with him? He was not thrilled nor stirred by what she had done. It was splendid and magnificent, only intellectually. In what should have been a moment of fire, he coldly appraised her. His heart was untouched. He was unaware of any desire for her. Again he remembered Lizzie's words. I am sick, very sick, he said with a despairing gesture. How sick I did not know till now. Something has gone out of me. I have always been unafraid of life, but now I never dreamed of being sated with life. Life has so filled me that I am empty of any desire for anything. If there were room I should want you now. You see how sick I am." He leaned his head back and closed his eyes. And like a child crying, that forgets its grief in watching the sunlight percolate through the tear-dimmed films over the pupils, so Martin forgot his sickness. The presence of Ruth, everything, in watching the masses of vegetation shot through hotly with sunshine that took form and blazed against the background of his eyelids. It was not restful, that green foliage. The sunlight was too raw and glaring. It hurt him to look at it, and yet he looked, he knew not why. He was brought back to himself by the rattle of the doorknob. Ruth was at the door. "'How shall I get out?' she questioned tearfully. "'I am afraid.' "'Oh, forgive me,' he cried, springing to his feet. "'I'm not myself, you know. I forgot you were here.' He put his hand to his head. "'You see, I'm not just right.' I'll take you home. We can go out by the servants' entrance. No one will see us. Pull down that veil, and everything will be all right." She clung to his arm through the dim-lighted passages and down the narrow stairs. "'I am safe now,' she said, when they emerged on the sidewalk, at the same time starting to take her hand from his arm. "'No, no, I'll see you home,' he answered. "'No, please don't,' she objected. "'It is unnecessary.' Again she started to remove her hand. He felt a momentary curiosity. Now that she was out of danger, she was afraid. She was in almost a panic to be quit of him. He could see no reason for it, and attributed it to her nervousness. So he restrained her withdrawing hand, and started to walk on with her. Halfway down the block he saw a man in a long overcoat shrink back into a doorway. He shot a glance in as he passed by and despite the high-turned-up collar, he was certain that he recognized Ruth's brother, Norman. During the walk, Ruth and Martin held little conversation. She was stunned, he was apathetic. 
Once he mentioned that he was going away, back to the South Seas, and once she asked him to forgive her for having come to him. And that was all. The parting at her door was conventional. They shook hands, said good night, and he lifted his hat. The door swung shut, and he lighted a cigarette and turned back for his hotel. When he came to the doorway in which he had seen Norman shrink, he stopped and looked in, in a speculative humor. She lied, he said aloud. She made believe to me that she had dared greatly, and all the while she knew the brother that brought her was waiting to take her back. He burst into laughter. Oh, these bourgeois! When I was broke, I was not fit to be seen with his sister. When I have a bank account, he brings her to me. As he swung on his heel to go on, a tramp, going in the same direction, begged him over his shoulder. "'Say, mister, can you give me a quarter to get a bed?' were the words. But it was the voice that made Martin turn around. The next instant he had Joe by the hand. "'Do you remember the time we parted at the hot springs?' the other was saying. "'I said we'd meet again. I felt it in my bones, and here we are.' "'You're looking good.' Martin said admiringly, and you've put on weight. I sure have. Joe's face was beaming. I never knew what it was to live till I hit hoboin'. I'm thirty pounds heavier and feel tip-top all the time. Why, I was worked to skin and bone in them old days. Hoboin' sure agrees with me. But you're looking for a bed just the same, Martin chided, and it's a cold night. Huh? Looking for a bed? Joe shot a hand into his hip pocket and brought it out filled with small change. That beats hard graft, he exulted. You just look good, that's why I battered you. Martin laughed and gave in. You've several full-sized drunks right there, he insinuated. Joe slid the money back into his pocket. Not in mine, he announced. No getting ori-eyed for me, though there ain't nothing to stop me except I don't want to. I've been drunk once since I seen you last. And then it was unexpected, being on an empty stomach. When I work like a beast, I drink like a beast. When I live like a man, I drink like a man. A jolt now and again when I feel like it, and that's all. Martin arranged to meet him the next day, and went on to the hotel. He paused in the office to look up steamer sailings. The Mariposa sailed for Tahiti in five days. Telephone over tomorrow and reserve a stateroom for me, he told the clerk. No deck stateroom, but down below, on the weather side, the port side. Remember that, the port side. You'd better write it down. Once in his room he got into bed and slipped off to sleep as gently as a child. The occurrences of the evening had made no impression on him. His mind was dead to impressions. The glow of warmth with which he had met Joe had been most fleeting. The succeeding minute he had been bothered by the ex-laundryman's presence and by the compulsion of conversation. That in five more days he sailed for his loved South Seas meant nothing to him, so he closed his eyes and slept normally and comfortably for eight uninterrupted hours. He was not restless, he did not change his position, nor did he dream. Sleep had become to him oblivion, and each day that he awoke, he awoke with regret. Life worried and bored him, and time was a vexation. End of chapter 45